0: Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 6, be in verses 1, all the way to 7-1. So 6-1 to 7-1 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Samuel 6-1 to 7-1. When I was a kid, there was a show that came on Fox, I believe, and it came on all the time. And the show was called When Animals Attack. You remember this show? You may have seen it. It's, it's basically, the premise is very much like the title suggests. It is people that got entirely too close to nature and realized that these animals are wild. And so you'd see sometimes they would play clips from all kinds of places, maybe home videos or maybe videos from like TV shows like sitcoms, or, or not sitcoms, but uh, uh, like what, what are the talk shows and things like that where they bring out the animals. You know, Jack Hanna and stuff like that used to bring out the animals. And they bring out this, like, bear on a leash. And they'd be like, oh, look how cuddly and sweet and cute this little teddy bear is. And then all of a sudden, this bear or lion or tiger or something would smell the tuna fish sandwich that the guy had for lunch and just attack this guy. And everybody would rush to the stage. And you'd realize instantly how foolish it was to take this bear out there on a leash. Like, that leash did absolutely nothing. The other day, I was watching this video, and it it didn't end badly, so just don't think it does. But there's this video of this guy inside this pen with two Kodiak bears. Have you seen Kodiak bears? They're massive. They're the biggest beasts I've ever seen in my life. And they're just in this cage, and he's in there with them, two of them. And he's got one of them around the head and he's just sort of hugging it and the bear's like licking on him and kind of doing like this, you know. And you can tell there's some familiarity with this bear. And he says, okay, well, I've had enough. And he begins to walk away from this bear and the bear just reaches down with his mouth and gently grabs, the, grabs his jeans by the mouth and just pulls him right back to him. And instantly you realize who is in control in this situation. It is not the man, it is the Kodiak bear. There is actually, and I learned this, I did, not, I did not know this, maybe you did. There is a name that they call people that have these familiar, you see these videos all over the internet of people that have this familiarity with these big beasts, like lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Um, and there's a term that they, they have for these people. Did you know? It's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. Yeah. Yeah. You're in this cage with this massive bear. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't care how familiar you are. I don't care if you raised it from when it was a cub and, oh, it it likes you. If you come in smelling like a tuna fish sandwich, you're dead. All right. You're dead. Well, in our passage this morning, Israel is going to find out the hard way. That this God that they've heard about from their ancestors that they barely know is actually much like that bear. You have to be careful how you stand before him. Obviously, we saw in the last passage, last chapter, as Tom preached last week very well, that the Philistines have found this out the hard way, and now they're ready to get rid of this bear. They're ready to send him on his way. All right. Let's read our passage, 1 Samuel 6, 1-7. to The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. "'Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. "'Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? "'After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? "'Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, "'on which there there has never come a yoke, "'and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home.' away from them and take the ark of the lord and place it on the cart and put in it uh, put uh, put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering then send it off and let it go its way and watch if it goes up on the way to its own land to beth shemesh then it is he who has done us this great harm but if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box of the golden with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping in the wheat harvest in the valley, and when they they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into uh, into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as, burnt, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there, was gold, there were gold, the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron, These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Goth, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck... "...some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, "'Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us?' So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerom, saying, "'The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord.' come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are prepared to hear from your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds, open our ears We want to understand what it is that you're saying to us here in your text. We believe that your word is authoritative, that it will correct us, that it will train us in righteousness, that it will equip us for every good work which you have prepared for us. So we pray that you would do that work now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the entire Bible, from beginning to end, is really telling one story about God establishing his kingdom on the earth. So you have to understand that and just remember that as you're reading the Bible, it's God establishing his kingdom on the earth. That's from the earliest pages of Genesis all the way to the last pages of Revelation. He starts it with Adam and then obviously Eve, and he gives to mankind dominion over the earth and that's his his goal basically mankind is going to act in his stead he is the king we're going to act as ambassadors vice regents you might say to represent his glory and his reign on the earth that is the task given to mankind but you understand then when Adam sins in Genesis chapter 3 it complicates the picture doesn't it If we're going to represent the glory of God on the earth, how can we do that if we're sinful? We can't. God is not sinful, is He? How then could we properly represent Him on the earth if we are sinful? So when God began to establish His kingdom in the aftermath of the fall, all of the pages following Genesis 3, what He could have done was He could have looked across the landscape of the earth and he could have selected the largest kingdom with the most power and influence so probably egypt at the time he could have selected egypt he could have come in and he could have kicked out all of egypt's gods he could have brought them into fear and trembling before him and he could have ruled and reigned and established his kingdom from a kingdom that was that already had a a dominance in the world couldn't he have? wouldn't that have made sense He didn't do that. Instead, he actually honed in on one singular man who had a wife and who didn't even have a son. And by all accounts, whose wife was barren, he began to establish the family of Abraham. And so from this singular family, this husband and wife, he promised that he would bring forth a king and a kingdom that was going to last forever. It was going to be through Abraham that he was going to establish this king and this kingdom. And so the king that comes from this family, the promise goes, is going to not only establish his kingdom forever, but he's going to reverse the curse of the fall. He's going to overturn death. Hey, that's that's a big task, right? For this king to come in and establish his kingdom and then also overturn death and all the effects of the fall. And then through him, through this offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I mean, that's a, that's a significant promise. Here's the curse given in Genesis 3, and then the promise given to Abraham and David, and, and so on through the Old Testament. This king is going to come, and he's going to overturn death forever, and relieve us all of the curse of the fall. So the family of Abraham, which eventually takes the name of his grandson, Israel, becomes God's elect people through whom the Messiah is going to come. So that's where we are up until the book of Judges. But then it gets particularly shocking to us, the reader, when we read through the book of Judges, and now we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're in about that time period of the Judges when God's elect people here, Israel, are doing what is right in their own eyes They've rejected the law of God entirely. Reverse the curse. They're subject to the curse in every way. How could there possibly be a kingdom established through this group of people who have rejected God from top to bottom? So instead of representing His glory on the earth and being and exercising dominion on the earth, 1 Samuel 2.12 tells us, The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That's the priesthood in Israel. The priesthood doesn't even know the Lord in Israel. So, as is common with the way the Lord works very frequently throughout the Bible, He's going to make sure that we understand that His kingdom was not built on the backs of hard-working, God-fearing types who loved him. But instead, his kingdom is going to be built on the ash heap of hard-hearted, idol-worshippers who don't even know him and who have burnt the law of Moses down to the ground. That's what he's going to build his kingdom on. That's impossible! Well, you might think that. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? That by the time He's finished, He will leave you with no doubt in your mind that only God could bring about the salvation of His people through His people from the children that have fallen subsequent to Adam. So really, the first six chapters of 1 Samuel, and that includes the passage that we're in this morning, are making this argument that Israel is completely and totally lost. Every last one of them. have no idea how to serve God at all. And yet, throughout all of it, God is going to remain faithful to the covenant that He made with them through Abraham in the beginning. He's going to remain faithful to that covenant, even though... What will be required of his faithfulness to fulfill his word to Abraham is ultimately going to be in the New Testament in the death of his son. With that background in mind, it might help us understand the passage that we're in this morning where Yahweh acts to his people in a way that some on first read might consider a little harsh. No? When you read this passage, don't you think it's a little weird? It's, it's a little strange. Obviously, there's golden tumors, and that's, that's strange in its own right. But then there's also the people who sacrifice and do these kinds of things as they celebrate that the ark has been returned, and then he just slaughters 70 of them right there. And it might seem to us on first blush that, that this is kind of harsh for God, but far from demonstrating God's harshness, what this passage is meant to demonstrate is that his own people are in such abject sinfulness that he the only choice that he has is to have abundant mercy on them, lest he kill them all right here and now. And so we see this when we observe the differences between the way the Philistines respond to the ark and the way the children of Israel respond to the ark. Remember, Israel is God's chosen people. And remember... In, last, in the last chapter, the Philistines had captured the Ark. They did that in chapter 4. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is, simp- is pretty simply a box covered in gold. And on top is something referred to as the mercy seat. Inside the box is contained uh, a jar, a golden jar of manna, which is the bread that God fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. Aaron's staff that budded and the stone tablets of the 10 commandments. And on top of the ark as I said there's this mercy seat on which is the presence of God. Now, what I don't mean to say is that the presence of God was only there on top of the ark, okay? So if that's what you got in your mind just kind of wipe that clean. Best way to understand the way the ark functioned is much like it's described elsewhere in the Old Testament and throughout all of Jewish literature which is God sits on the throne in heaven, and the earth is his footstool. And where he rests his feet is essentially the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So here we have the footstool of the presence of God where it dwells. And what has happened to the Philistines is they've taken this into what they thought was captivity. They brought it there, and they realized, as Tom described it last week very well, it became a weapon of mass destruction. And they started to realize when they had it there in their temple that uh, it started to cause tumors on people. And as they passed it from town to town, tumors started to break out all over the people there in the towns where it was housed. And so they passed it around like a hot potato. And as they did this, it began to affect all the people wherever it was. And so they realized we've got to do something with this ark. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to get it out of our hands. We don't want this. This is more than we bargained for. And so they can't keep it. So needless to say, this ark is no ordinary box. The way that people actually treat the ark, you understand, says a lot about how they view God. The way they treat this box, on which the presence of God dwells specially, says a lot about the way they actually view God. And, and even more than that, it says a lot about how they view themselves in relation to God. In other words, are we God's homies? Can we just walk up to the ark? Or not? It says a lot about how they view God and about how they view themselves. So as we look at this passage, we have to ask the question, how do the Philistines actually deal with the ark? So look at verses 1 and 2. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, and the Philistines called for the priests and diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what, sh- with, with what uh, we shall send it to its place. So already there's a marked difference in how the Philistines are dealing with the ark than the way the people of Israel were treating the ark. The Philistines are treating this thing as they bring in the priests and the council around them to ask, what do we do with this thing? Remember back in chapter 4, the Israelites first bring the Ark into the story. They're fighting against the Philistines, or they're preparing for battle against the Philistines, and they they decide, look, we've been whooped in battle once, so here's what we need to do. We're going to go and bring the Ark of the Covenant into the camp as a good luck charm for our next battle with the Philistines. And as soon as they bring it in, the priests come in, and they're kind of toting it out, they're carrying it out, they're responding to the call of the elders, bring the Ark in. The priests come in, and they they set it down, and all of the children of Israel shout. That's not what the Philistines do. The Philistines realize that what we've got on our hands is more than what we bargained for, and so what do they call? They call the priests and diviners around and ask them for advice. What is it that we should do with this box? But notice that not only do they have priests and diviners come around, but notice what the priests say. Look at verse 3. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn from you. So just think about this for just a second. The pagan priests advise an equally pagan group of Philistines to not only return the box, that's conventional wisdom, but also give a guilt offering because you're guilty before the God represented by this box. Make a guilt offering before when you return it. Not only returning the item, but actually paying homage because you've offended the God represented by this ark. He, they even tell him, you must give glory to the God who is represented by this box. Does this sound like a group of Philistines? That doesn't sound like normally the way we would see a group of Philistines represented, and as we will see them represented later. Well, as it turns out, God actually has part of His law dealing with how you make restitution if you have taken or have mistreated something that is sacred from the tabernacle. If you've dealt with some of these sacred objects like the Ark of the Covenant, if you've done that, Here's how to make restitution. Leviticus 5, 15-16 says this, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven sounds very similar to what the Philistines are actually doing when they're sending this ark back to Israel they're making restitution for what they've done they're admitting their guilt before the Lord and they're giving him glory and saying we're sorry we didn't mean to Now, the Philistines don't follow this to the letter of the law, obviously, but again, they're pagans. They don't have the law. They're doing what would presumably be common amongst many ancient Near Eastern religions. They're claiming their guilt of sacrilege against a holy object, and they're giving an offering to the Lord. And they're actually sending it to a community of priests. More than that, what else do they do? Their guilt offering is also a payment of restitution. In verses 4 and 5, they're told to send the ark back, and with it they send these golden tumors and golden mice, and they give glory to the Lord. And in verse 17 and 18, we learn that those images of tumors and mice represent the five major cities of the Philistines and all the suburbs. Now, when we look at that, we're, we're like, what in the they're making images? Of tumors. I don't even know what an image of a tumor looks like. Well, there, there's two words that he uses for tumors here. One, one word just said, means tumor. It's very generic. And another word means hemorrhoids. So you can kind of understand a little bit of what was breaking out across the Philistines and why they wanted this gone. But needless to say, that's as deep as we need to go into it. All right. The five tumors they see represent the five cities of the Philistines, and the mice represent all of the suburbs, essentially, that they're giving back to the Lord. But the point is, they're responding to what the Lord has done, and they're, giving, they're paying homage to Him. But that's not all they do. Notice something else they do, and if you don't pay attention, it'll, it'll fly right over your head. Look at verse 6. They say, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away, and they departed? There's something a little familiar about what's happening here in relation to what's happening in the book of Exodus as the children of Israel go away. There's some parallels that are being made. Egypt realizes after the tenth plague that the cause of their plagues are these children of Israel, and so what do they do? They send them away. The Philistines have now realized that the cause of their plague is this box, and so they're going to send it away. But remember in the Exodus, when they send the children of Israel away, do they send them away empty-handed? No, they send them with gold, tons and tons of gold. What are the Philistines now sending this ark away with? Gold, tons of gold. They're sending this back to the children of Israel. But the difference, and this is key to understanding the difference here, and it's drawn out in the text. In fact, the priests and diviners actually just state it outright. The the difference is that the Philistines are responding relatively quickly to this heavy hand of judgment that God is placing on them. They respond immediately. And they even say, instead of hardening our hearts, toward God, and then God bringing nine more plagues on top of us, why don't we just respond now and shortcut this whole thing and just take the first plague and send it on? So in other words, instead of getting all the way to the point where He sends more plagues on us and eventually kills our firstborn, why don't we just respond, not like the Egyptians did, but let's just let's just respond in, in, in repentance and just send it on. See, this is the second time the Egyptians are mentioned in this whole section where the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, if you go back to chapter 4, just turn back there if you've got your Bible there with you. Just turn back to chapter 4 where this whole drama began. And if you look in verse 11, verse 17, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, and 5.1. 11, 17, 19, 21. Twenty-two and five one. What's described there is that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. The author wants to make sure you understand that the Philistines have this Ark by the leash as they're heading off into ter- into their own territory. And then, what do they do when they get it? They treat the Ark of the Covenant as if it were their trophy for their god Dagon. And they put this war trophy in his temple. But if you go all the way back to 1 Samuel 4, 8, look at verse 8 of chapter 4. When the Israelites bring the ark into the camp with a great shout, the Philistines there begin to worry because the reputation of Yahweh precedes him. They know, wait a second, the God that they serve, do you remember what he did to the Egyptians? Remember what he did to the Egyptians? He killed them in the Red Sea. So in other words, the Philistines are at base camp, down at the base of the mountain, hearing this shout up at the top, and they're worried because, look, if we go into battle against them, we might end up like the Philistines. I mean, like the, like the Egyptians. We might end up just like them. And we don't want to end up just like them. So what do they do? They end up getting this kind of rallying cry in 4-9 And they say, hey, listen, you bunch of ninnies, you want to end up their slave? Of course you don't. Then you got to fight really hard. And so they do. And the author of 1 Samuel wants you to remember they captured the ark. They captured the ark. They captured the ark. They captured the ark. But it kind of raises the question did they? Or do they just have a bear on a leash? Is that really captivity? I don't think so. But the natural assumption would be at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 that they have utterly defeated Israel. They're not like the Egyptians. They have conquered their God. They have actually put Israel in bondage and Yahweh has been conquered by Dagon. But even after the victory in battle against the Israelites... What we see now is that their worst fears are realized. And they have come to a realization of their worst fears. We don't want to end up like the Egyptians. Uh Uh-oh, we have actually become the Egyptians in spite of our best efforts. So to avoid making the mistakes that Egypt made, they decide let's just eat crow now rather than later, rather than harden our hearts and force God's heavy hand of judgment to come down with even more force, they decide to just take the L. Just take the loss. The Philistines are seeing that the real weight of glory in Israel lies not with Israel's armies, but with her God. You can defeat her armies. It's no impressive feat to defeat her armies. Many have actually done it before, but her God will never be defeated. You can conquer the armies of Israel, but you will never win the war. So what do they do? How do the Philistines respond to the ark? They soften their heart. And they repent. But how do the Israelites respond to the ark? So the Philistines concoct this plan here at the end of how to send it back. You can't just send it back normally, all right? we got to know when we send this back. Was this really the hand of the Lord? Should we expect the plague to be lifted off of us or not, right? So they concoct this plan where they got to determine whether this is the hand of the Lord or just coincidence. And so they tie up two milk cows. Those are not normally the cows that you would hook up to a, a cart, but that, that's precisely the reason they're going to test it. Not only are they two milk cows, but they're also two nursing cows. They have, they have young calves, all right? And so they're going to lock up the calves in the opposite direction in the house. Have you ever separated a mama from her child? All right, you think mama bears are bad, mama cows are bad too, all right, apparently. So we're going to lock up the cows back here, and we're going to put the milk cows where they can hear the bleeding of their, cow, of their calves back in the house. Right? And if the cows then, who are not used to pulling a a cart and who hear their calves back this way, turn away from their calves and walk with this cart back to the land, then we'll know that the Lord was in fact judging us. It's a pretty crafty plan, right? They've got it. And of course, that's exactly what happens. The weapon of mass destruction is now in the hands of Israel, they follow it all the way till it's till it meets its end, and they just want to make sure that it stays with them, doesn't come back their way. And by the look of it, the Israelites receive it. And in verse 14 and 15, we see how they receive it. Look at that with me. Verse 14. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. So, they offered sacrifice to the Lord. That's good, right? Israel's back in the good graces of God? They've offered a sacrifice to the Lord? Thank you, Lord, you brought the ark back? Fantastic. Not quite. I want you to look at Leviticus 1.3. It's going to appear on the screen behind me. I want you to see if you notice something about it. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. What is the law? Offer a male without blemish. Two qualifications. One, male. Two, without blemish. Here we have two female Philistine cows. Are they without blemish? Well, they're from the Philistines, doubtful. Are they males? Nope, they're cows, and they got calves back at home. And so they offer them. Now, here's what you need to know that might help. See, this cart comes into the town of Beth Shemesh. And Beth Shemesh is actually a very important town because it is a town, a village, filled with Levites. Levites. You know who the Levites are? The Levites are the priestly clan. So the Levites represent the priesthood of Israel. And wouldn't you know, they're harvesting wheat and they see in the distance, here come some cows carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the most sacred object in the temple, into a town filled with people who make their living by dealing with sacred objects like this. And the first thing they do is offer a sacrifice that is different than what is required by law. The Bible would call this strange fire they offer to the Lord. But that's not all they do. Look at verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow the ESV translates this their sin as that they looked upon the ark of the lord but the same word upon could also be translated in and all of the rest of the major translations opt for in rather than upon so did they look in the ark or did they look upon the ark We can't really tell, but you could imagine why they might look in the ark. Is this the real ark of the Lord? Well, there's only one way to tell. Inside of it has Aaron's staff that budded, a golden jar of manna, and the stone tablets of the commandments. Simply by lifting the lid, we can peek inside and look at it. So, did they look in it, or did they look upon it? There's really no way to tell, but both make some sense. According to Numbers 5... Uh, Numbers 4, 5, sorry. Numbers chapter 4, verse 5. The ark is supposed to be covered. That you're not even supposed to look upon it. And the same chapter tells us that the Kohathites, who used to carry the ark on rails, would not only carry it covered so that they couldn't look upon it, but they weren't even supposed to touch it. They weren't supposed to look upon it, or they weren't supposed to touch it, lest they die. And so by all indications... If they looked upon it, they deserved death. If they looked in it, they deserved death. And that's precisely what God did. Anyone that looked upon it, anyone that looked in it, anyone that touched it, they all died. Now what we also can't be certain on is whether he killed 70 men or 70,000 and 70 men. The word could mean either one. I realize there's a great disparity between those two, 70 versus 70,000 I give you that. My guess is along with the ESV that it's 70 men, but the point is that they continue to treat this box that is supposed to be consecrated to the Lord as if it were their plaything. They can do with it whatever they want. It doesn't really matter. God is not really there. This is no different than a wooden idol. It doesn't have feelings. It can't speak. So we can do with it whatever we want. So the ark comes back in, and they're happy they've got their toy back, but they care nothing for adhering to the law that God requires. And still there's one final thing that they did that was particularly galling. Look in verse 21. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. That's, it's also helpful to know a little bit about Kiriath Jerim here, the town that they call to. Kiriath is a town made up of mostly Gibeonites. Now, I realize when you read the Old Testament, all the ites start to blend in, right? You got the Gibeonites, you got the Perizzites, you got the Hezites, you got the Parasites, you got the all the different ites in the Bible, and they start to blend together, and you don't really know which way is up. But the Gibeonites were essentially Canaanites, another ite. They were Canaanites, they were to be judged, but what happened when Joshua came upon them is they tricked Joshua. They tricked Joshua into making a covenant with them. And Joshua, rather than once he figured out that they had tricked him, rather than going back on his word and killing them, he chose to incorporate them into Israel by making them servants in the temple. And many of them were stationed at Kiriath-Jerim, where they were servants of the high place that was stationed there. But these are Gentiles that are serving the temple. Who do the people, the priests, the Levite community, who do they seek out? They seek out a bunch of Gentiles to come and take care of the ark. You got to do something with it. We can't do anything about it. Aren't you Levites? Aren't you priests? So the Levite community sees the ark of the covenant rolling into their town. After seven months of captivity and they rejoice, they offer some strange fire and then they get to poking around to the ark. They look at it directly or maybe even they open the top and they look in it. It becomes quite the spectacle of all. Everybody's dancing around it and looking at it. Oh, I've never seen this. I've never, I've never dealt with the ark. Oh, this is the ark. Oh my goodness. And so God strikes 70 of the men dead. And what do they do? How do they respond? Do they respond like the Philistines did. Repentance and offering and true offering. No, they don't reform their ways or they don't make restitution the way the Philistines did. Instead, they ship the Ark off to a community comprised mostly of Gibeonites serving in the temple or in a high place. They consecrate one of the hobbits there, Eleazar, to have charge of the ring. In, In Abinadab's house at the top of the hill or maybe he lived under the hill, I don't know. It reads a bit like Lord of the Rings here, realize what they've got, Ring of Destruction, and when we started this study of First Samuel, I told you that the Jewish nation is but a remnant of what it once was at this point in history, the people don't know God, not even the people, the priesthood doesn't know God at all. But here we see the shocking and even frustrating point emerging from the story as the author draws our attention to how far the people of God have actually fallen. Even the pagan Philistines respond to God's punishment in much better ways than the children of Israel. Now the pagan Philistines remain pagan. It's not like they were converted at all. But yet, even they knew that the God of Israel was judging them and that they should respond in remorse and repentance. Instead, the Israelites' understanding is well stated here at the end of this passage. Look in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall He go up away from us? This is a great question that I think we should still be asking to this day. Who who should stand? Who can stand before this holy God? In fact, this is the point that the author is getting to. God has supposedly gone into captivity, willingly, mind you. He has judged the people that held him captive, the Philistines. Who can stand? They send him back to the priesthood. The priesthood is judged by him slaughtering 70 men, or maybe 70,000. Who can stand? Who can tolerate this God? You see, the God of the universe will not be approached with a cavalier attitude. He will not be approached in an offhanded manner. He is not a God that you can come and claim to worship and live however you want. Or even come and worship Him however you want. He is a God who sets the terms of His worship. Now, He is absolutely slow to anger, merciful and kind, and abounding in steadfast love. But you understand sinful humanity assumes that because he is merciful and because he is slow to anger and because he is abounding in steadfast love that he would naturally want to be our friend and if we stink of sin that he'll overlook it because in reality he doesn't care too much about that. More than anything he wants a relationship, don't you know? But in reality it's like walking into a lion's den smelling like a gazelle. What do you think is going to happen? But what hope is there actually for us? And that's what the people of Beth Shemesh are are coming to the realization of. Well, well, if he treats us like that, the people that he has a, a covenant relationship with, if he treats us like that, then who could possibly stand in front of him this question that the people of Beth Shemesh asks reminds me of a similar question asked by another group of people later on in Scripture, and it's in Revelation 6, 15-17. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne for the and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand they ask the same question well who can stand you see in this scene that takes place at the end of human history John describes the clouds being rolled back like a scroll, and the wicked are being judged, and they're realizing that their time is up. So, if you can imagine this happening, we're just all kind of meandering, going about our regular lives. Maybe we're in church, maybe we're at work, whatever we're at. All of a sudden, the rooftops are blown off. The clouds roll back like a scroll, and there, standing before everyone, all the world is God sitting on his throne and Christ sitting next to him. What's the first thought? Well, if there's any indication, it's uh uh-oh. Everything that we heard about the gospel actually is true, and they actually cry out, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's the same question. So when God is revealed in judgment, like he's revealed to the Philistines in chapter 5, like he's revealed to Israel in chapter 6, and when God is revealed in judgment, the natural question that comes into the mind of the unrighteous to those caught in the cage with the Kodiak bear is much the same question of the men of Beth Shemesh. Who can possibly stand in front of this massive creature? Well, when we get to the next chapter in Revelation, we get the answer. There's actually an answer to that question. Who can stand? And we get the answer in verse 9. And it's 9 to 17, and I'm just going to read it. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What are they doing? Standing. Before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Are they running in fear? Are they saying who can stand? No, they're standing before the throne and they're crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst Anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Are they facing a Kodiak bear who's angry and going to devour them? No, quite the opposite. He's a guard bear. Shelters them with His presence. Protects them. Now, if I said you had a Kodiak on your side, would you take that? Of course. The God of the universe, the Lamb Himself, is going to shelter them with His presence. Who is standing before the Lord? What we realize in this text, the author is making abundantly clear the unrighteous will not stand before God. They absolutely will not. Only the righteous will stand before him. But friends, the question is, is your mind's eye fixed on this day when you will stand before the Lord in judgment? You see, we're all being walked to the cage where the Kodiak is now sitting, every single one of us. And there will be a day where they open the gates and throw us in. And the question that you have to wrestle with right now is, is that bear on my side or is he against me? Is he for me or is he against me? Because if he's against me, who can stand? And if he's for me, then I have a tremendous friend. Is this person friend or foe? Well, on that day, you're going to quickly find out. You find out whether he is on your side or against you. But you understand this is precisely why the atoning work of Christ is necessary. Because look, if it were left up to us, who could possibly walk into the cage? Would you be confident in your own holiness to just open up the cage and go in and stand before the God of the universe? Are you trusting that much in your ability to win friends and influence people? Yeah? You understand, this is why the work of Christ on the cross is necessary. Because He was the righteous person. He walked into the cage, and instead of God treating Him like a friend, devoured Him. You understand, Christ satiated the hunger of the bear, so that it wouldn't eat you. That's precisely what He did. But if you're sitting there in your place right now, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm just not sure. I don't know. And it terrifies me to think of what that might be like to walk into the cage. I might be like the men of Beth Shemesh or the wicked there in Revelation. I might run screaming, wondering if there's anything in this cage that might protect me from this holy God. Then why don't you respond the way the Philistines did? And let me ask you the question that they pose to themselves. Why harden your heart the way the Egyptians did? Why? Why not instead repent of your sin right now? Why not confess your sin? It's all you have to do. Just right where you're at. Just confess all the sin that's right there on the Just confess it all. Unbelief, confess it. Idolatry, confess it. Trusting in your own works, confess it. Sexual abuse, confess it. Sexual immorality, confess it. Greed, confess it. Lust, confess it. All of it, it's right there, just confess it. Now the rest of your life is that pattern of continually turning to the Lord, confessing your sin and trusting, this is what comes on the back end of that, is trusting that Christ's righteousness satisfied the bear's hunger. That he won't devour me when I walk into the cage. Trust in Christ for your salvation. You see, don't play games with God. This goes to kids, teenagers, listen to me. You are not a Christian simply because your parents are Christians. You need to understand that. You are not a Christian simply because your parents are Christians. Their faith does not cover you. It must be your own. You must understand that you are a sinner. That you, too, are in need of Christ's righteousness. And that without Christ, you're walking into a cage with a hungry Kodiak who will devour you in a moment. Confess it. Turn from your sin. Trust Christ for salvation. What you find is that is the only way to stand before a holy God under the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us here in this congregation, not least of which our own children. What a temptation they face As they are brought to church every Sunday, as they hear the gospel preached and taught every Sunday, as they're around Christian parents who do everything they can to model what it's like to follow Christ imperfectly, there's a great temptation on them to think of themselves as Christians. And thinking that mom and dad's faith will cover me too. I pray for them. That you would protect them from that thought. And from the self-righteousness that might also be baked in by the help of me, by the help of their parents, by the help of many others. Who might demand on them to act perfectly. To act right. And then thinking of themselves as a Christian because of the way they behave. And because of the way other people think of them. I pray that you would take that thought from their mind too. And instead instill in them the gospel of Christ's righteousness for us. Of Christ's atoning sacrifice on our behalf. That they might realize their need for Christ. And follow him all of the days of their life trusting in him alone for salvation. I pray that for every single person in here, myself included. That there would never be a day where we wake up failing to trust in Christ for our righteousness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.